This is the Delivery Space podcast. Whether you're interested in software delivery, business change or transformation, we've got some great content lined up for you. We launch into different areas of delivery and bring you those insights and experiences that you don't get from a book. Welcome, it's Sharon and Nisha, and this is our episode on driving value with Sprint Goals. Good morning, Nisha. Hey, good morning, Sharon, and what a lovely morning it is too. Indeed. I'm so excited to have Martin. Hey, Martin. Hey, good morning. (laughs) (laughs) It's been already, it's been such a nice uh, sort of warm up to the episode, and I know everyone's going to enjoy it. Martin, would you like to introduce yourself to our listeners so they can get to know you better? Yeah, hi, I'm uh, Martin. Um, I've been writing about Agile and Scrum around eight years. Uh, Yeah, I wrote a book, which was released a few months back, but it took like three years to write. Uh, Yeah, maybe that's it in a nutshell, I guess. That you that may be in a nutshell, but we know so much good stuff about you, Martin. We're gonna we're gonna draw it out. To start off with, though, we have got some quick fire questions, right? Just to warm us up. And what we're gonna say about these is is that people normally have them at the end of the episode. We're gonna have them right at the beginning, just so that we can mix it up a little. Oh, you're putting me under pressure. (laughs) (laughs) It's gonna be fun, right? First one. Over to you, Sharon. So if you weren't writing about Agile and Scrum, Martin, what would you be doing? Oof, I would probably be writing about something else. Uh, yeah, and probably about psychology or self-improvement or maybe about evolution. Uh, hmm. Yeah, I think I would still be writing just about a different topic where I hopefully would have some expertise in. Interesting. Nice. So there's a there's a, yeah an element of psychology that you use in in your writings about agile and scrum already, right? Yeah, I mean, I just love reading. I, I like I studied biology, and I find psychology fascinating. So yeah, I read a lot of books. I mean, I stopped reading when I was writing. I, I've read read like fifteen books in two months now. So. Yeah, I'm sure I would be right. (laughs) Yeah. And I just have to say, dude, like reading through this, you blew my monthly Amazon budget. So thanks. Oh, (laughs) sorry. (laughs) Because like going through that, I then had to read um, David Marquet's Turn the Ship Around. I could not put it down. That's great. So like you really like inspired me to read further materials outside, directly outside of the agile world. But that was really cool. Okay, one more question um, from myself coming up. What's one book other than yours that every Agile practitioner should read? Yeah, that's, uh, I would recommend um, Made to Stick by Chip and Dan Heath. They okay. are two brothers, and they wrote a book about how do you tell a story that it sticks, but they can, you can also tell it to someone else. And I've tried to do that in my book. Because I really believe in the power of stories. Because before there were books, there were stories, and nobody yes. would write stuff down. But we still ha- we are still hardwired to remember stories and tell them to other people. And why that book? It's because if you're influencing people and you can tell a good story, look at someone like Steve Jobs with his reality distortion field. Yeah, uh, you you can just uh, yeah you you can do a much better job. And that book was written by two brothers, like I said. But one of them is a teacher, so practitioner. One of the other one was a researcher, so more in the theory, and they wrote a book together. So it's the perfect blend of how do you do it, but also why do you do it? And the whole book is written in the style of this storytelling. So when you read the book, you're like, 
oh, this makes a lot of sense. This is so sticky. And then they tell you, yeah, and this is how you do it. And you're like, wait, this is super easy. I can do this. Right. And and people struggle with storytelling. And sometimes like when I write posts, I do go through that mental process of like, how am I telling this story effectively enough? Am I getting my point across? And then sometimes I'll rewrite it and write it. But you do, it's nice to have that scaffold and that reference. I'm going to look that one up. Yeah, it's really good. It's really, and it's fun to read. So yeah. <laughs> cool. Last quick fire question for you, Martin. What was the last movie you watched and what did you love most about it? Ooh, that's a good question. What is I haven't watched a lot of I've watched more series. Is it okay if I answer with a series? Uh, sure. Is that acceptable? Yeah. yeah. Sure. Okay. Um so I watched uh, Succession. Uh, I don't know if you know this TV series, but it's really yeah. fascinating. Um it's actually about a really uh, rich TV mogul, like TV like media boss, and uh, he's about to retire, and everybody in the family wants to take over his position, hence the title, right. Succession. Mm. But what is so fascinating about the TV series is that it's kind of like this blend of beautiful acting abilities, but humor, uh, but like, how do you say, they have so many Emmy Awards now because all these different like side characters, they're just fully fleshed out. <laughs> Yeah, uh, it was just a fascinating TV series to watch. One of the best I've ever seen. Yeah. Oh, nice. We're going to have to have a look at that one. Yeah. Well, for all the hours that you two don't get sleep because of children, <laughs> that's, that's, that's a worthy like contender for your time, it sounds <laughs> like. So, Martin, let's go straight in to talking about the book. Um, Sharon and I found it fascinating. I read it during my summer break. Um, and as you know, I broke my wrist this year. So, but it couldn't have happened at the most opportune time because it allowed me, without work distractions and what have you, to really get into it and just love it. And from the moment I picked it up, I felt I was completely absorbed. I don't want to tell our listeners and, and watchers about it because, like, you have a great personal story that is a that runs as a little backdrop throughout the whole. Um, to throughout the whole book and it brings real experiences of yours to life um, and that's something that we don't draw enough on because it's it's real life like every day when we work with teams and we go through our experiences that is the stuff of real life like our interactions our challenges our ups and downs and that story played so beautifully to really the theme of the book, which is working together effectively towards that purpose. Thank you very much. Yeah, yeah, it's a, it's a childhood story. I'm not going to spoil it, but uh, yeah, um, I think it's good to use relatable examples because probably you have a similar story from your childhoods where you're like, oh yeah, this makes sense. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. So, okay, I have to ask you, you've got such a vast and broad range of experience as a product consultant. Why did you pick Sprint Goals? Like, why was that the inspiration behind your book? It grabbed me. That's maybe the honest answer. Like, like I was the biggest Sprint Goal skeptic. And, 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 and so I was like, I didn't get it. And, and then at one point, um, I was working, uh, I was switching teams as a product owner. And I was not allowed to help my old team. And, and they were extremely frustrated. So they came to me and I told them, like, why don't you try Sprint Goals? Knowing, like... I was like, I was just telling them something. I didn't believe it would work. Just pick one thing. And a few months later, they came back and they were happier than every, ever. Everything was running smoothly, even when they didn't have a product owner. And, and then I realized, wait, 
there's something there. And I started trying out myself and I was kind of converted, if I may call it that way. And because I read so many books, I suddenly realized, wait, this makes a lot of sense, actually. Uh, and yeah, those books were in the back of my head. And I was like, there's a really strong like um, military history behind goals. And and yeah. yeah, that's why they work. And 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 then I figured, yeah, nobody has written a book about this, even though it's for me, it was kind of obvious. And I was like, yeah, maybe I should write about it. <laughs> it's the spring calls are so fundamental, though, right? Because... And, but but I do have to say they're quite very very much misunderstood and Correct. underappreciated. I feel I get asked to go in and work with teams when they're already up and running, and I could sit in a sprint planning session and Martin, like you know, when I'm just observing and just finding out where the team needs help, I always now listen out for what the state of their sprint goals are like. And how they put them together. And you bust a lot of myths in here around things about sprint goals being either a shopping list, having or not having that focus. One of the things that is occurring and reoccurring, especially in the conversations that we've had, is that they are there to empower the teams. So, like, it's, you know, if the teams embrace sprint goals, they're taking their power back right? They're, they're, they're now in charge of their own destiny. Can you talk to us a little bit about that? Because that is such a, I don't know, such a juicy thing for teams to yeah. actually realize and hold on to. So what's interesting, so Marty Kagan has written his book, it's called Empowered, and he talks about the difference between mercenaries and missionaries. Yeah. But it's already there in the name, a missionary has a mission. And yeah. I think that's the key thing. Like if people don't understand what we're trying to achieve, why it matters, how can they make decisions? How can they change plans? How can they be empowered? The only thing they can do is ask, hey, things are going different, differently than expected. What should I be doing now? They, then they need better instructions. But we mm. don't want them to need better instructions. We want them to be able to make decisions. And that's kind of where goals come in. We can, they empower teams to make decisions in the moment when surprises happen or things go differently than expected. Yeah. And that's the that's another beautiful thing about the book that I really loved is our environment. Even before you go in to sprint goals, your focus is actually to get the reader to focus on what kind of environment am I finding myself in here? What's yeah. like the decision making setting that I find myself in here? Well, how are all of these actors playing to that level of decision making? What are our circumstances, right? I know Sharon's fascinated by this. I am. Yeah, I am. Because this is something new to me, actually. So in your yeah. book, you touched on the Kinefin model. I hope yeah. I pronounced that correctly. Developed by Dave Snowden at IBM, yeah. I believe. Yeah. And it's got these five different uh, domains, which yeah. informs which strategy we should take. Yeah. And as I was reading through, I definitely um, could could see that a lot of the environments that I operated in were in that complex domain yeah. where you talk about um, high friction, yeah. frequent surprises. <laughs> yeah. Can you talk a little more around this um, this concept of friction, surprises, yeah. and also humble planning? Yeah. So, so friction is a very old concept. It was, it's, it has its roots in military warfare. Like von Clausewitz like talked about friction, and basically the way he defined it is, like you make plans, right? But then there's a little bit of fog, so you don't see the enemy coming, or or the the ground is muddy, so the the cavalry arrives late. So all these little unanticipated things you didn't know before, and they cause surprises, and they make your plans obsolete, right? Uh, so. 
that's so basically I define friction as anything that increases the chance of surprises happening. So the beautiful thing about the Kinevin model is the I mean I I try to simplify it right. I mean it's much more complicated and much more complex than I'm explaining it. But um, if you have no friction, that means you have no surprises, right? It's clear, it's obvious for anyone. But then at some point, when you have sufficient friction, like experts, you need experts, right? They, they, they can see, they can still predict, they can still plan. But as friction increases at some point, then even experts won't cut it. it then it's about like what happens in reality and how do we adapt to that? That's complex. Mm. And then at some point, if you just have constant state of surprise with like, uh, how do you say a state of emergency something happens like then you need to stabilize situation then uh yeah move to a more stable domain because yeah you cannot plan and predict so yeah that's kind of in a nutshell what i try i try to simplify it um i'm sorry you asked some more questions uh, uh you please yes, repeat so, <laughs> i forgot yeah, sure. no, no problem so following on from that you spoke about humble planning yeah correct so are you able to touch on what what yeah. is the humble plan so because we talk about systems, right? So one of the first things I always notice in companies is that they don't do humble planning. And the way to look at it is as follows. Like before starting, there's the fog of beforehand. You simply don't know what you don't know before you start and you need to uncover it. And the way I see it is you're, you're surrounded by fog. And what a lot of people do is to actually go in meeting rooms and they try to imagine what is there in that fog? Like what could possibly be there? And then actually what they do is they introduce more fog because you're kind of uh, making up stuff because there's just stuff you don't know. And then you get the fog of speculation. So when you do these things, you actually get overconfident plans. So these are plans that are rooted in your imagination. They're not rooted in reality. And this is an extremely common problem. And then, and it's, it's, I think it's our typical response when faced with uncertainty complexity. We're like, we've, we turn inwards and we focus on what we know and what we believe to know and do a lot of thinking but the reality is, if you're faced with fog, you need to do a step into the fog, and then you gain more information and more understanding. So that's what I call humble planning. You start with very simple plans where you just say, hey, I'm going to take a step into the fog. I'm going to see what I discover, and then I'm going to change my plans. So humble planning isn't about like not planning. It's just about planning more later when you have a better understanding, when the fog of beforehand is removed and not injecting the fog of speculation in your plans. And I, I, am, I love the simplicity um, yeah. and how how you've described it, Martin, because I'm not an agile coach. Uh, like Nisha's very much the expert in that area. But in reading your book, it was so clear, so simple for me to comprehend and yeah. connect the dots. And I was saying to Nisha, this relates to life stuff, right? Yeah, <laughs> so yeah. Yeah. me Big becoming time. a new mother, uh, a parent for the first time, pre-baby, you make all these plans. I read the books, I spoke with other parents and I said, it's going to be like this, but it wasn't until baby arrives, you yeah. take this step and you're doing the doing. That's when, you know, you learn and you grow and you're able to iterate the plan. So for me, I could just see what you're describing in my real life day to day. So, so you're touching on a very interesting point because actually a niece contacted me while I was writing a book and she was having a baby and she asked me for advice and I told her, don't make big plans. Don't make big decisions yeah. because you're making them now based on your current situation, who you are now, what you know. But when you have the baby, you're going to be a different person. You're going to look at the world differently. The baby can be super easy. It can be super difficult. So postpone all big decisions until you have better information. And yeah, I don't know if she did that. I have to be fair, but I thought it was good <laughs> advice. <laughs> 
It's great advice. <laughs> and you can see it. it. Sharon's like experiencing it, working out in her own life right yeah. now, right? Yeah, for sure, for sure. <laughs> that that I can pinpoint the actual put the, the 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 section in the book, Martin, where you talk about road mapping hell. Yeah. And when you talk about that, and I'm, I'm not the only one, I know it, because I want people to book club the heck out of this book. <laughs> I tell you why, because a lot of people will find that they either were a fly on the wall in certain situations that you describe, or they were main actors in these certain situations. And like, when you talk about roadmap hell, like, you know, as in like Sharon's just said, with a baby how can you put a roadmap together like this is life all sorts of intangibles unknowns unexpected things are going to happen same with transformation projects I was working for a hospitality company on a contract and there was a big transformation project and we had consultants bought in they produced granted they did the interviews around the business and produced this beautiful looking five-year transformation roadmap then they zoomed in to the next, say, year. And at that point, because I, I had the role of a senior project manager then. And so I was brought in to have a look at this roadmap and start forming the roadmap. And I'm sitting there really uncomfortable, making noises. Like, I hope I'm not going to be held to these dates because I need to sit with my team. And it was a transformation phase one of a transformation program and we needed all sorts of complex integrations so one part of my brain and my heart is screaming shit prove the tech do experiments prove that you can actually do this integration put something in the roadmap that says now next later and I was pushed and pushed to such an extent that I kind of I ended up going my own route making my own connections within the organization to run these experiments let them put that what they wanted in the roadmap and then started having conversations with stakeholders that I so that I could have that influence to be able to say this is complex we need to carry out experiments to do this and when I was reading your roadmapping hell what you had to go through and all the work just imagining all the work you'd have to do up front for that just think geez is that worth it because did any of that work out tell me no, it didn't work out. And uh, I've seen, I, I saw, actually saw this cycle repeat like 10 times and not working. So I'm fairly confident it doesn't work. But yeah. you're touching upon a very important point. Most organizations, in my experience, believe you need to have experts and experts can make a plan and then you can follow that plan. And if you cannot follow that plan, then you don't have the right expertise. You don't have, but, but that's the whole problem. That's the fundamental flaw. Yeah. It is not about the expertise. No matter your expertise, there is going to be surprises because what you're doing is complex. And I think that's the fundamental flaw. And what makes it even worse is when you believe that it's complicated so that you can plan and predict while well, it's complex, you're going to make everything worse because you're going to have the fog of speculation and you're not going to reveal the fog of beforehand. So it all goes downhill from there. And it's just really, really sad. And I wish more organizations would understand this. And that's what I try to do with my book, give simple vocabulary so that anybody could explain it to the sea level in ways they could understand. Um, not saying that they're not smart, but you need simple concepts that people can relate to. Yeah, and it's packed with them. Well, one of the simple contexts that um, I really love is giving power to the teams. And one myth that you smash in here, 
with a big sledgehammer. There's, <laughs> there's no, there's no blimmin' um, sub team in, in a scrum team. Yeah. You shouldn't have. You don't have to depend on your product owner to magic magic this sprint goal up, which is the dynamic that I see play out in scrum teams. Like at the end of the sprint planning, okay, so what's our sprint goal? Vroom. All the all the attention and focus is on the product owner. Remember that? Yeah, 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 yeah. Of course. As a product owner, there doesn't have to be that way. There's no sub team in a scrum team. No, correct. Like we're one scrum team, and that makes me really sad. Like. For a framework, like it's talking about agile and empowered teams, very often what you see, there are silos. Like it's the product owner. Tell me what I should be doing. Tell me what the goals should be. If you want to have empowered teams, it needs to be a team effort, even setting the goal, because we're we're not here to write code. We're not here to deliver features. We're here to make an impact for the customer yeah. and grab that value for the business. And that's a team effort. Hmm. Yeah, absolutely. Sharon. Martin, you talk about um, having emotion in in your book and you use the focus mnemonic. Yeah. Could you talk us through that a little bit and what it means and why it's important? Yeah, so you know, LinkedIn has this new feature where they talk about uh, all collaborative articles, right? And then they talk about goals. Oh, yeah. And what yeah. they recommend as a best practice is SMART goals. And I think that's just incredibly boring. I never seen a SMART goal dropped in a conversation in any meeting ever so the thing is yes of course they need to be smart but in the end we're telling stories like like we're, we're motivated by emotional things uh, and that's why you need more than the facts and that's why the focus acronym let me just recap the f so it's an acronym that can help you set uh, great sprint goals kind of like invest for user stories so the f stands for fun right uh, so have a title that's a bit fun and why, why is that important? Because if I watch documentaries about great teams or about big, whether it's about Pixar or Lights and Magic, they always make fun. Like they have these, these fun inside jokes that they, it just elevates everything. And it's a bit, and, and if you cannot do that, at least come up with a memorable title so that it can be dropped in conversation because nobody's going to talk about 10% conversion increase by reducing shopping carts, uh, sorry, by improving shopping carts. Nobody's going to drop that in conversation. Okay, so the, the O stands for outcome-oriented. What are we trying to achieve? Like, uh, So what are the outcomes we're looking to achieve? Because outcomes are lagging. Even when you improve the site speed, you need some time. And that's why uh, we need to understand, yes, we're delivering this feature, but this is what it's supposed to impact ultimately. Um, so the C stands for collaborative. It's a team effort. It's because... If we do it together, then everybody has the same understanding and it's our goal and it's not just something that we're spoon fed and, and, and yeah, it just increases clarity. And then you have you for ultimate. Why are we doing this? Like, what is the context that matters? Because yeah, you can make a decision to improve the shopping cart speed, but what is the current situation of the company? Why is this so important? Like all the context, because yes, you know the outcome. If you don't understand why the outcome matters in the context, you still can make the right decisions. Because imagine you cannot achieve that exact outcome. If you understand the context, you can make. So um, S stands for singular. One thing, not two things, not three things. And that's because when you have one thing, you have focus. And that's why I also picked the focus acronym. Mm -hmm. um, you need to focus because it's kind of like a constraint in a, in a way. Uh, so, yeah. But that increases creativity. It makes sure that you focus on the most important things that matter. I love that. It's um, so simple and something that anybody can um, easily remember. And I like that you have got the fun aspect in there 
and that you talk about making things, you know, bringing that emotion into it because that's what sticks in our minds, right? Yeah, I mean, you you read the book, right? Uh, like I try to tell stories with emotions because I really believe that in our brains, when we read something that and our emotions are lighted up, we remember it better because it's more entrenched yes. in like the web of our memories. Because when we read it, we're thinking about our own childhood or our own meeting. And then boom, it's connected. And then you remember yeah. it. And then why don't we do that with other things? Like why do we keep it factual and boring and not related to anything we've done in the past? It just doesn't work. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, I'm gonna I'm gonna um, again pull on another example, and I'm a, I'm I'm tempted. I'm I'm just gonna sound really silly, so I'm tempted to actually play this like or sing or or hum this music that you describe in the book because <laughs> it's one of my all time favorite movies. Like, um, but it's Leitmotiv, mm -hmm. Martin. And I want you to talk about that because it brought a huge smile to my face. Okay, I probably wasn't the age that this movie was rated when I watched it. My parents let me watch it, but it became my all-time favorite movie to which every Halloween it came out. And what's the most memorable part of this movie, Martin? It's that. Yeah, or did it, did it. Oh yeah, that's the one. Right? Yeah, you're talking about another one. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, I'm talking about another one, but both, right? And and like this is the fun part that you're talking about. This is what people remember. When you want to prank your cousin or there's there's someone at school that you that you want to like reminisce about something with, what do you automatically remember? You remember a theme, don't you? Yeah, correct. And 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 here's a here's a fun story. When actually, I don't know if it's in the book, but uh, when uh, Spielberg heard the tune for the first time, yeah. he was like, is this, is he joking? Is he playing, is, is he playing a joke on me? So this was, um, I think his name is, is John Williams, right? Like, uh, so a very famous composer. And is he, is he being serious? Like he started laughing, like, oh, so funny. And then looked at him like very serious, like, no, no, this is the thing. <laughs> yeah. And then there became that, that very odd, ominous sort of theme tune to Jaws. Yeah. Like it's got a, it's that it was released the year I was born, man, in yeah. 1975. That's it's such a special film mm -hmm. to me. It reminds me of so much. But then that is like kind of like a sprint goal. That's the thread. That's like this um, th um, memorable theme that's occurring throughout your sprint it's there for your human story it's there for your human experience of what you're actually building and, and a fun fact jaws was a terrible movie in the sense that it was like three or four times over budget and why was that because they had a shark that kept breaking down they didn't yes. anticipate it spielberg right. moved uh was making the film by filming it on the natural light so uh, at sea every every shot is completely different so you yeah. it was a nightmare and he actually rewrote the whole script because he realized mechanical shark is not going to work. Filming at the natural light is also going to make it really difficult. So he decided, hey, we're not going to have a shark. We're going to make it a Hitchcock style movie. And yeah, for me, it's just a beautiful uh, example of beautiful things emerge, right? Like it doesn't, yeah. it wasn't planned this way. Uh, and, and, and I think we should allow that for more. Our plans need to accommodate it because you also, I also read recently the Pixar biography same thing. All Pixar movies sucked initially. The beautiful movie emerged through the creative process. Same in gaming. 
most of those games, like they suck in the beginning and then during the process it emerges and we need to allow for that. And we don't allow for that if we do overconfident play. Hmm. And circling back to yeah. a really useful point, Martin, you make and Sharon, I know you're always in the room with execs mm-hmm. in your PMO role, right? Yeah. Where you're looking at roadmaps, but yes. People like me, like coaches, scrum masters, and then project managers are also called into that fray. And you have to justify why you're making these decisions. But I think this is where, as a community, we can improve. Based on what you were saying, Martin, around you know more the now, next, later sort of planning yeah. and being able to be transparent with the C-suite is such a big deal. Like being able to be transparent to say, these are our assumptions and these are areas of complexities. Having that conviction to say, this is what we don't know about. And that's why we cannot plot this roadmap and this detailed plan for you. But we're going to get there. And this is the the plot, the, the, the course that we're going to plot to try and make the experiments so you can get more clarity. And to say that, I think like, A, it requires courage. But B, it sets your team off on the right path, right? Yeah. And do we want to have glorious plans or do we want to have a glorious path? And uh, there is a big difference between the two. Exactly. Yeah, Yeah, absolutely. Martin, can I just um, touch on something? So I was thinking to myself, um, what happens if there's no sprint goals? And one of the things that you touch on in your book is technical debt. Yeah. And I've seen this across a lot of organizations that I've worked in. Can you talk to us a little bit about that and what's the link between the two? Yeah. So what you see is if there's no sprint goal, what you generally see is the goal is to complete everything in a sprint. That becomes the goal. And then the problem with that is when the sprint starts, time is fixed. That's the sprint duration. Resources, I don't like that word, but that's, you know what I mean. Resources also fixed. Even if you would add double the team during the sprint, probably it's going to slow you down. So resources are fixed. Other thing is quality is uh, fixed because you've got a definition of done. So everything is fixed. (laughs) So what happens usually is that there is technical debt introduced. They cut some corners in scope or quality and then they deliver everything in the sprint. And why this happens is because our estimates are wrong. And and yeah, we get punished for not delivering in the sprint. And so we try to make up for it. And that's what I generally tend to see. So quality becomes flexible because everything else isn't. Mm. Interesting. Yeah, that's the interesting point to note there. And I think what I want to encourage teams to do is read the book um, and talk about areas of the book because it relates to life. It, what it does is that it breaks down your experiences of a particular, of working in sprints, of using Scrum to deliver value and being cognizant of the fact of the choices that you're making within that sprint. What it allows you to do is provide you that that attention that you yeah. need to give to it to say, okay, so, you know, when we're, when we're, working towards a sprint goal or we are we compromising because things happen within a sprint right things happen like you get distracted you could have a stakeholder with what seems to be a most important ask if you haven't articulated the sprint goal correctly then you're not on good footing team because what's going to happen to you is you're just going to be swung from one ask to another and then you you try and tie that back to what you're delivering during a sprint review well how can you 
complain um explain it um with that conviction that passion to say hey this is what we went and produced right this is the impact that we want with it now let's watch it go in production and see how yeah. well it does exactly and yeah and what i also think i've also been in situations where we were on it we discovered during the sprint the goal wasn't possible so they i don't remember all the details but it was something on the lines of we wanted to do something to reduce costs and mm-hmm. we discovered that the, the approach we had chosen was not going to work and ultimately, we are, we decide, hey, actually, we can scale down the current instance, and it will still work fine, and we're going to make a lot more, save a lot more money, and it will be much less work. So we actually achieved the sprint goal in two days, and instead awesome. of two weeks. Wow. <laughs> yeah. yeah, yeah, and that's that's the other range, uh, the danger of being distracted that I want to like really um, drive home, and and I've seen it often enough where when you are distracted. But what can happen is that if you're not going towards a a singular focus goal, then you could be introducing tech debt without thinking about it, right? And that tech debt, the dangerous thing about that is that's not immediately visible to the users. And the foundation upon which you're you're developing other features, other functionality out there could be shaky sooner or later. So it starts to come apart. The Spring Goals try and help you hold that together. Yes. What's the sanctity of what we're trying to do? Let's get back to that. Let's get back to that. Right? Absolutely. Oh, this has been such a lovely conversation, Martin. We could talk to you like forever, picking <laughs> apart like some really great examples that you've given your book. But I just want to encourage everyone that's watching and listening, please go out and draw and, and purchase this because it's such a great book. It will give you some great examples, um, invaluable for agile coaches like myself and scrum masters. Um, who want to work better with their teams also invaluable for exec um, who want to be able to get closer to your teams you should always be closer to the people doing the work so you can influence the right behaviors in the right way for some great outcomes and even from my perspective as a non-agile coach as a pmo person um, i just found it really easy to read to digest Um, the stories are great and relatable so for all the PMO people out there, I encourage you to pick it up and read it. Um, it's invaluable, well-written, and great job, Martin. I loved it. <laughs> Thank you. I mean, that's what I was hoping for, that everybody could read it. Like, uh, I mean, that's what I tried to achieve. I don't know whether I succeeded, but that's... I think I didn't want it to be too much like a scrum thing or anything. But uh, yeah, thank you. <laughs> no, not at all. Martin, if people want to work with you, connect with you, talk to you a bit more about your book invite you to speak about your book in their communities of practice or you know um how do they get hold of you tell us you you can find me on linkedin i've got a website uh, domain.com with a uh, y but i mean you just google my name and you'll find it so uh, yeah (laughs) i've got a unique name that's more the thing not that i'm that special Thank you for joining us today. We really appreciate it. We wish you an amazing Thursday and we cannot wait to get this episode out. Me too. (laughs) Thank you, Martin. And to all our followers, thank you for watching and listening and look out for our next video.